Hi, this is filmmaker and author Michael Morin. Whenever I'm not riding my bike around the Davis campus, I'm listening to 90.3 KDVS College Radio right here. FM. Cool. This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. We have a very special guest today coming in our second segment, Zachary Sklar. Mr. Sklar was the co-author of the screenplay for Oliver Stone's movie, JFK. And uh, this, of course, is the 40th anniversary of the assassination of President Kennedy next week. We're going to be talking a bit about that uh, subject here on our public affairs broadcasting. Tentatively, we will be taking Jeff Kravitz's um, um, slot next Tuesday. Jeff uh, had another engagement and graciously loaned us his time slot. We'll be talking to Danny Schechter, co-founder and executive producer of Global Vision, a New York-based television and film production company. On that same Tuesday slot, we will also be talking to Gil Metavoy, who does a, will start out to be a music show, Crossing Continents, here on KDVS on Saturdays, but it has become a show that deals with what is going on in Israel and the Middle East. And I think Gil does as good a public affairs broadcasting as, uh, not only as I've heard here on KDVS, but as I've heard, period. On uh, next Wednesday's show, Dr. Andy, Dr. Andy's Poetry and Technology Hour, will be talking to researcher James Diogenio about this same subject, the JFK assassination. When we get our turn, we will talk to Jane Rusconi, who was Oliver Stone's primary researcher in, uh, in the movie, along with Dr. Gary Aguilar, one of the few people who's ever been privileged to see the actual autopsy photos and x-rays of the late 35th president. And on Friday... Historian Roger Peterson will be going on Ron Glick's program, Speaking in Tongues. So you'll be able to get some continuity on this subject. Mr. Schechter, I forgot to mention, uh, produced uh, JFK, A Question of Conspiracy, which is a companion video that went along with the director's cut of Oliver Stone's movie. So it's going to be kind of an an Oliver Stone extravaganza next week when we talk about Kennedy. But uh, that's going to be, I think, extremely interesting. And we're going to start actually today with Zachary Sklar in the second segment. So stay tuned for that. All right, a little bit of follow-up today. Last week, we talked to Ann Dilzer of Planned Parenthood about uh, the so-called partial birth abortion, its ban, uh, the, the lawsuits that are going forward, and Anne will be talking to us uh, again in the future about that same subject. But uh, she gave us a heads up on another matter. After we talked to Anne, we talked to Jeff Kearns from the Sacramento News and Review about this issue of the arena in downtown Sacramento. Uh, Anne felt rather passionate about that and wrote a very good letter to the Sacramento Bee. She called not to direct my attention to her letter, which is a good letter, but to the one that came afterwards because she had to admire how much this person said in a brief period of time. And we're great admirers of people who can convey their, uh, their ideas in a short period. And so I want to quote that letter in its entirety. Last Monday, from the B, Stephen R. Stapleton from Sacramento wrote, With all due respect to all involved, could it be that the downtown arena failed not because, quote, the arena's campaign was ineptly handled, unquote, as the article put it, 
but because it was a spectacularly stupid idea, a pointless waste of scarce resources, and wildly unpopular with the voters. Well, Mr. Stephen Stapleton, I think it uh, could indeed be that uh, that's why the downtown arena failed. All right, uh, let's pull some items here um, off of the headline news. There's one that we got off the web. Bush touts tax cuts as source of gains. According to the Labor Department, uh, payrolls grew by 126,000 last month, more than economists had predicted. Well, I was drawn to another headline, that from The Onion, which, uh, which is dated in News in Brief. Eight million Americans rescued from poverty with redefinition of term. Approximately 8 million Americans living below the poverty line were rescued from economic hardship Tuesday when the U.S. Census Bureau redefined the term. We're winning the war on poverty, said Bureau head James Irving, who lowered the poverty line in a four-person family to 14945 Today, millions of people whose inflation-adjusted total household income is less than 16780 are living better lives. Somehow, somehow in an election year, I think The Onion is about as correct as the Labor Department. Look forward to seeing many more sunny predictions about what the economy is doing in the near future as we ramp up toward election 2004, because, of course, the voter doesn't like to get bad news about economics before an election. The powers that be have a vested interest in fudging things. Think they will? All right, another item out of The Onion. Gay gene isolated, comma, ostracized. (laughs) On Friday, scientists at John Hopkins University isolated the gene which causes homosexuality in human males, promptly separating it from normal heterosexual genes. I had suspected that gene was queer for a long time now. There was something not quite right about it, said team leader Dr. Norbert Reynolds. Among the factors Reynolds cited as evidence of the gene's gayness were its pinkish hue, meticulously frilly perimeter, and faint but distinct perfume-like odor. Item from the Chronicle, last Friday, November 7th. Bush calls on Middle East to open arms to democracy. Hussein's fall a watershed for the world. Of course, we know where that story's going to go. Um, Yeah, we're going to bring democracy to Iraq as soon as we can organize this election for Mr. Ahmed Chalabi. But you remember a few months back when Afghanistan, uh, there was a war in Afghanistan? And it was said that one of the reasons there were so many problems in Afghanistan was that the U.S. had turned our back on that poor nation. Uh, In the wake of the war with the Soviet Union, um, we just basically abandoned them, and that led to chaos. That would never happen again, we said. Well, it turns out that Vida... Samzai, the first Miss Afghanistan in three decades to compete in a beauty pageant, has been warned that she could face prosecution in her native country. Yes, Fazel Ahmad Manawi, deputy head of Afghanistan's Supreme Court, told the Associated Press that Vida Samdazi, college student in California, had betrayed Afghan culture by appearing at the Miss Earth contest in a bikini and may have also broken the law. Now, I realize that bringing democracy to the Middle East doesn't necessarily mean a liberalization of uh, social mores, but, um, uh, you know, (laughs) wearing a bikini just shouldn't get you prosecuted.
Well, fair enough. Once you get past the utter cheesiness of beauty pageants, uh, I guess in their own way they are making a statement. I mean, we do take for granted that women can uh, dress as they please in this country, something um, they don't have the right to do just everywhere. So, uh, okay, I think we should have more Miss Afghanistans in bikinis. We promised you some follow-up on two science stories last week, and by gosh, we're going to deliver on it. We actually went over to This Week in Science, our cohorts, our chums over there, to see if they might help us with the story, because of course, uh, Kirsten, Greg, and Ted do science every Tuesday morning. But alas, we were unable to secure their assistance, so we shall wing it alone. All right, we mentioned last week from Science News that uh, the fossil remains of an ancient lizard-like reptile are uh, helping span a 120 million year data gap between its ancestors and the Tuatara of today. Now we mentioned on the show, I think many of you will be surprised to know this, that reptiles are not divided into four different divisions, not divided into snakes, lizards, crocodilians, and turtles. No, there's a fifth, the Tuatara, a lizard-like reptile which lives only in a few islands in New Zealand. Now, I must confess, I'm not herpetologist enough to tell you why the Tuatara, which looks like a lizard, (laughs) walks like a lizard, (laughs) probably eats like a lizard, isn't in fact a lizard. I just don't know the answer to that, but it isn't. And in the fossil record, I guess um, when you're looking at the bones of the Tuatara or its predecessors, people are able to make that distinction. Now, uh, This is not exactly an earth-shaking story, a 90-million-year-old fossil unearthed in northwestern Patagonia, but I just liked the fact that we could talk about the Tuatara on the radio. I mean, this is not the kind of thing you're going to get on other radio shows, let's face it. Paul and Phil, you can listen to them all year long, and they're funny guys, but they will never address the Linnaean categorization of different types of reptiles. And uh, last month, on October 15th, in the other science story we wanted to bring you up to date on, scientists rediscovered the asteroid Hermes. I find this to be an interesting tale. When I was a kid, I read about this famous episode back in 1937, where an astronomer noticed an odd streak of light that he'd taken in the night sky in a picture, uh, and then saw it again and realized that there was an asteroid bearing down on the Earth. And in fact, whipped by the Earth only twice as far away as the Moon, but they weren't able to get a good fix on the orbit. You gotta remember that that these objects are sometimes as dark as a lump of coal. And when it's coming into the Sun, you can see it pretty well, but when it sort of gets in between us and the Sun, is mostly um, shaded, well, it just plain disappeared. Astronomers are know, have known for years it's out there, and that they knew eventually somebody was gonna rediscover it, and that, uh, that date came uh, last month. Now, this idea of near-Earth asteroids has been a great concern to people here on Earth since we realized, dating back to 1980, when scientists Walter and Louis Alvarez first sort of suggested to scientists that the disappearance of the dinosaurs, this great mystery that occurred 65 million years ago, could have been from an asteroid striking the Earth. This is now accepted everywhere. We even know where the asteroid hit. It's down in the Yucatan. And... Um, A lot of people are wondering about the possibility of this sort of thing repeating itself. Hollywood's gotten involved with movies like, uh, what was that movie, Armageddon? I don't know. There's movies about asteroids hitting the Earth. Well, they were worried that Hermes might come out of nowhere since we didn't have a good plot on its orbit. Thankfully, we now have it handled pretty well, and we know that we're safe here on Earth. 
However, the articles did note that when Louis Alvarez was making this proposition uh, back in 1980, unbeknownst to observers on Earth, six months later, Hermes would pass 300,000 miles from the Earth's orbit, which is just a little bit further out than the distance to the moon. This is too close for comfort, and I think had, uh, had people known about this, Alvarez's theory would have gained uh, acceptance probably a lot sooner. And uh, we certainly do support the effort to go out and track these near-Earth objects, NEOs, to make sure that um, if one of them is making a bullseye for Earth, we might do something about it. This is one of the, uh, one of the justifications that is grounded in reality as regards a sort of missile defense system putting some weapons up in space. They certainly don't make a great deal of sense as, a, uh, as opposing adversaries here on Earth, but uh, in terms of doing something about asteroids out there, well, mm, makes a certain amount of sense. And in other space news, the Earth apparently avoided any major complications from the largest solar flare that we've ever seen in the modern era, uh, blasting off the surface of the sun uh, a week or two ago. But uh, this same sunspot group is currently around the backside of the sun, is going to reappear in about, I don't know, 10 or 12 days. It could still be active, and uh, the Earth could again sort of be in the crosshairs. Uh, Stay tuned to that one. Um, if it does face the Earth, uh, you know, at 90 degrees or sort of, you know, straight on, and there's a big eruption like the one that we recently had, well, um, this could actually generate current in wiring. Uh, back in 1859, when they'd first started to lay wire for the telegraph, something happened on the sun that apparently generated such currents in these new wires that fires started everywhere. It just there were huge electrical surges. If this sort of thing happens again today, we'll look out. We could see large power outages as electric grids uh, are overloaded and then shut down. Uh, you know, we could, have, we could have fires starting again where wires are overloaded, back with the, like the telegraph back in 1859. I mean, it could really uh, be something, and scientists are amazed at why the sun is all of a sudden doing this, uh, this uh, strange um, eruption of activity. And uh, by the way, you know, we're protected from a lot of these, uh, these charged particles that come streaming off the sun's surface by our own magnetic field. The uh, magnetic field directs these particles uh, by, you know, putting, applying a force to them, and they wind up hitting up in the northern latitudes, causing the northern lights. It's, it's still imperfectly understood, but um, we do get a certain protection from this. People have been suspicious of the fact that the Earth's magnetic field may be weakening at the moment. We know historically that every so often it weakens, stops, and reverses itself. And uh, it's felt that when these periods happen, that the Earth is exposed to a lot of extra radiation. It's, uh, it's bad news, and uh, it's very, very much too early to say that's what's going on right now. And the process does take a long time to complete itself. But it's a curiosity we'll come back to, hopefully with our friends from This Week in Science. And let's close this segment with a final science topic. You've heard about the space pen, right? The pen you buy that has a cartridge under pressure as used by America's astronauts so that they can write in space. Well, the Soviet Union never bothered to develop a space pen. And it was said for years that, oh yeah, the Russians don't use a space pen because they take pencils up. They don't have our technology. Well, someone let the cat out of the bag recently when he was up on the International Space Station and observed Russians using the common, everyday ballpoint pen in space, which apparently works just fine. Yes, somehow the capillary action is more important than gravity in making the pen work. And you know what? I'm sure Paul and Phil didn't cover that story either. 
Let's take a short break. I'm Douglas Everett. This is KDVS 90.3 FM, Davis, Sacramento. Oh, and this is Radio Parallax. And don't touch that dial because we're going to come back and have a very interesting discussion with Mr. Zachary Sklar to follow.